If you don't like curse words, that has nothing to do with me. Please be advised. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm an androgynous, black, lesbian, feminist, and a lover of all black people. This is Darren. I'm an asexual novelist, researcher, and bona fide comic book fanatic from the widest part of Southern California. Orange County. We're queer millennials with three kids and nearly 20 years of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness, adulting, and relationships. This is That Black Couple. Hello, hi, hey, this is That Black Couple. Are you ready for episode 34? Darren, are you ready? It's our first deep dive episode of I know. season three. And it's Black History Month. It's, it's a very special moment. It is. And we are calling this episode 34, the Black Futures episode, or how to move as a healing black person in 2022. I love that. Probably because I came up with it. <laughs> but also because we all should be trying to move as healing black people in we this should. new year. We should. So what I'm going to tell y'all right now, go get you a nice cup of chai tea mm. or chamomile. I need y'all to get something um, relaxing. Sit on your couch or in a nice armchair, armoire. Uh, oh, no, you can't sit on an armoire. Armchair. <laughs> Um, don't sit on your table. Don't sit on your don't, don't sit on your. Don't sit in your closet. <laughs> don't don't do all of that stuff. Get a chaise. Uh, uh, my friend calls it a fainting couch. Mm. Okay. Um, get comfortable and cozy up and listen to this episode. Now, I also want to offer a trigger warning. We will be talking in this episode about uh, depression, mental health, and suicide. So just to be clear, uh, prepare yourself for a conversation that's important. It's really important that we have it, um, but it is going to be uh, hard. It's a challenging conversation. Yeah. All right. Have a seat. This is That Black Couple. I'm Jen. I'm Darren. And before we get started, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ThatBLKCouple, on Facebook at That Black Couple, and look us up on the internets at our new flashy website, mm. www.thatblackcouple.com. Yes. And you can stream us everywhere. That means iTunes. It means Spotify. It means SoundCloud. It means Google Podcasts. It means Stitcher. Everywhere you can listen to a podcast, you can find us. And wherever you listen to our, to our podcast, make sure you give us ratings that are super, super high. Thumbs up what we what we have. Share us with your friends. That. Yeah, that's most important. I was going to say that. <laughs> share <laughs> us with your share friends. Share with your friends. You know, you know, do something good for them. Bring black, that black couple into their life. Today, yes. Okay? Bless their hearts. Because you know it's going to make their life better. Absolutely. Now let's go. You going to get us started there? Okay, yeah, let's let's get started. Um, so yeah, we're talking about black futures and how to be a healing uh, black person in the new year. Mm-hmm. And really how we came to this is, you know, when you, when you have a new year, there's so much joy, there's so much celebration, especially after a year like 2021, we're like, bye, bitch. And also 2020. And 2020, you know, we want to leave all, all the all negativity and the darkness and stuff in the rear view. Um, but we, there was just so much bad news. I feel like in, in, you know, the first month, month and a half of this new year, there's been a substantial uptick in the loss of black lives, especially when you think about people related to celebrities or people that are celebrities. 
um, we had the the tragic loss of Regina King's son, Ian Alexander Mm -hmm. Jr., Mm -hmm. um, apparently to suicide. Um, Kevin Ward, the mayor of Heightsville, it's a Maryland suburb right outside of D.C., also um, life taken uh, apparently due to suicide. And Chesley Christ, um, former Miss USA, uh, 2019, um, she was just 30 years old, uh, very well known. Um, apparent apparent loss of life once again due to suicide and it's just really really tragic to hear this about so many people um, so many people that are well known loved respected and in a lot of cases these were people where a lot of people really didn't seem to have any idea that they were having any type of struggles they seemed Mm -hmm. like they were happy like they were looking forward to to life that they were joyful Um, and so it's really hard when we hear this news repeated over and over and over again I mean, so one thing I also want to talk about, especially about the the Chesley Christ um, instance of uh, and her experiences, is that you know um, her particular um, passing was very gruesome. Um, she fell from a high rise in New York, and her mother reported that she had been struggling with depression. Um, and you know. You and I, we went to USC. We we had friends who also passed away um, due to suicide while mm-hmm. we were in college. Um, other prominent folks, remember? And so we've seen this, I think, for a long time. That was 20 years ago um, with black people. And so, you know, part of what we were talking about today is the fact that, you know, depression is a very real thing. It's a very real thing. And unfortunately, a lot of folks... Uh, disregard depression as uh, something that people experience momentarily or that is just going to pass once someone um, gets a new job or finds a new lover or, you know, uh, enjoys a carton of ice cream. But the fact of the matter is, is that depression is uh, a state of being. It is an illness. It is something that we um, struggle with in an ongoing way. You and I both have struggled with depression. Correct. Um, You and I both have struggled with anxiety. And I wanted to make sure that in this conversation, we have a very clear um, and and transparent conversation about the ways that uh, we just don't talk enough about uh, depression and anxiety and various mental health issues that affect black people and how those things are directly related to suicide in our community. This podcast is supported by generous donations from our patrons and listeners. Become a supporter today by heading to www.patreon.com slash media. You can stream the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. When you listen, please consider hitting that heart button, sharing, giving us a five-star rating, and leaving some dope comments. This helps us with our paid drinkings and gets more listeners for the show. Thank you so much. So let's get into segment two, the conversation. And what I wanted to bring today was um, a conversation I recently had with some some comrades on my uh, Instagram for the Black Feminist Book Club that I have. Um, you can, you know, if y'all are interested, go ahead and look me up on the internet. You can find me everywhere in Janem Jackson PhD and just look for the Black Feminist Book Club. Uh, but the point I'm making here is that we talked about Bell Hooks's book, Sisters of the Yam. And uh, that book is is phenomenal for an, a host of reasons. But one of the reasons is that Bell uh, dedicates an entire chapter to uh, black folks, depression and suicide. Mm-hmm. 
And in the chapter, she talks about the ways that a lot of black women who she um, had worked alongside and had uh, struggled alongside had struggled with depression. And a lot of them had died by suicide um, and were quite young and were deemed successful. Right. People who seemed like they had it all, who were beautiful, who were fit, who um, had families, who had uh, money, who had a roof over their head. Right. So, you know, these these kind of superficial ideas around who is OK, um, they, they checked all those boxes. Yeah. And um, what Bell was was saying was that, you know, part of the issue that we have in our community, in our various communities as black people, is that we don't offer enough space for folks to express sadness, you know? And I think about this all the time when I was younger and I would say things like, oh, I'm so depressed about my job or um, I'm feeling really sad right now. And people would say, well, at least you got blank, right? Or mm-hmm. at least you have a husband or at least look at your kids. And they, there was very much um, this attitude of dismissiveness where it's like, well, you have all these things. So, so just, you know, ignore your feelings of sadness. And in the book, in Sisters of the Yam, um, uh, Bell encourages us to really uh, allow people to sit in their dark moments and their dark feelings and to share those dark feelings and those dark moments um, and to speak very openly about having feelings of suicide. I can also share for me, like, you know, growing up, I I was very much um, struggling with depression, even in my teens. You know, there were times where I was like, you know, I feel like I don't need to be here anymore. And if I died, no one would care. Um, You know, there were actual days where I was like, this is it, you know? And it was very lonely and it was very isolating. And there were people, you know, friends of mine who who were also queer. And I think it it did come from a place of, you know, feeling isolated as a queer person among a lot of like Christian heterosexual people um, who understood that. And I did have a place to go to talk about those things. But I also think that... um, for me, uh, you know, in my adult life, um, I have soft places to land when I feel those ways, right? Um, I have a, I have a therapist, I have partners, I have you, right? I have community members, I have best friends who, um, who have said to me, you know, you, uh, are valuable, you are important and your feelings are valid, right? Um, and rather than shaming me or making me to feel um, as though uh, there's something inherently wrong with me, right? For having those feelings, they instead have said, you know, this is this is normal. This is life, right? Yeah. Um, it it gets hard, especially in a moment like this. And so, I think I've just been really grateful to return to Bell Hooks's book right now, Sisters of the Yam, um, as she's talked about specifically truth telling, right? telling our truth about how we feel, how, how we are navigating the world, and then making sure that we have community around us um, that makes space for that truth. And that is often the problem. Now, you know, Belle is focused on the lives of Black women, but I know, Darren, you were looking at uh, this issue as it pertains to Black men. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think every point that you were making is spot on here, because it's I do find it very interesting that people feel like when you say you're depressed or you're sad or your feelings are hurt, they immediately deflect into, well, here's what you do have going, mm-hmm. right? And and the dismissiveness and, and 
not not even necessarily not validating your feelings, but just leaving them mm-hmm. so that they're undealt with, so mm-hmm. that they can grow and they can fester and they can turn into more and more darkness. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, coming into this, as I often do, um, I wanted to just know some facts because the to me, I feel like at the end of the day, the facts matter and we can talk about stuff as much as we want. We can have as many opinions as we want. But it's important to ground those things in the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I had a particular interest thinking about black men and mental health and kind of what 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 the groundwork looks like right now. Like what what is what does it look like outside? And, you know, just just to kind of walk everyone through this, when you think about the population of the U.S., black people are just over 13 percent of the U.S. population now. When you then think about how mental health issues affect the black community, it's almost always disproportionate mm-hmm. uh, when you think of, think about things on a percentage basis. So, you know, the percentage of black people that, that face certain stigmas and things are much higher than the percentage of people in larger communities mm-hmm. often, which really points to how big the issue is. Um, so as an example, um, depressive symptoms among black people are more disabling. They're more persistent. Um, and they're more treatment resistant than they are among white people, mm. right? So they, they hurt us more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're more likely to stick around for a longer time. And they're also much harder to treat. Mm. And, and, that's, and that's really, I think, an important thing to realize, number one, just as a baseline, that it's just it's already harder. We're already starting behind. Um, but then when you compare um, black people to whites, uh, black people are less likely to receive guideline consistent care. They're less frequently included in research and they're more likely to use emergency rooms or primary care rather than an actual mental health specialist. Mm. And so and it's really funny when I was doing this research, I feel like this ties into so many other issues that we've seen with the black community, especially medically related issues. Um, there's just less proactive work not just on the part of black people ourselves, but among society at large mm. to make sure that we are cared for. Right. So if some if if you think about people that are doing mental health research, if we're less likely to be included in that, then all the procedures, all the medications, all, all of the processes that come out to help people with mental health don't include us. Mm-hmm. We, we are not a part of the conversation. So even when we might seek that mental health care it's less likely to be applicable to us mm-hmm. in, in our daily lives and actually have the benefits that, that you would expect. Now I'm not going to go too long on this, but there, there are a lot of stats that I pulled and it's, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's pretty um, astounding. Um, so for instance, only 26.4% of black and Hispanic men ages 18 to 24 who have experienced daily feelings of anxiety or depression were likely to have used mental health services. Mm-hmm compared to 45% of non-Hispanic white men with the same feelings, mm. right? And once again, remember, we're talking about percentages, but you also have to put those percentages in context with how big these groups make up the entire body of the U.S. Mm-hmm. So when you see a higher percentage among black people compared to whites, when you think about that, you have to think about the actual volume of people and how disproportionate that can sometimes be. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this is the one um, that I think we probably have some comment both of us on our own experiences um when you think about black men um more than likely if you're seeking mental health you're probably going to try and find a mental health provider who can identify with you so more than likely a black man Mm -hmm. or a black woman or a black identifying person 
Um, but when black men do seek help and would prefer a same race provider, it can be difficult to find black psychologists since they only make up about 4% of the doctoral level psychology workforce. Mm. Right. And once again, look at the percentages. If black psychologists make up 4% of the workforce, right. but black people make up 13%, 13% of the population, but then out of that 13%, we disproportionately probably need more mental health. Absolutely. Think about how much of a su- supply and demand issue there is right. when we are out there looking for the support that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can say, you know, once again, from my own experience, I've had a lot of therapists over the years from all the different places that I've lived and gone. Um, in all of that time, I've had one black male mm. um, therapist. Um, I've had one black woman therapist. Um, and I searched long and hard. You sure did. I remember Long that. and hard and hard and long. Your Excel sheets. Um, to find them, I called all around. Mm-hmm. I searched all over the internet. And it's just difficult. And even in this point to that issue as well, even when I was able to find people, that didn't mean that they even had the space to allow me in. Exactly. Right? So then you find someone, you're like, oh, great, this one looks great. And they're overwhelmed. And they're overwhelmed. They're completely overbooked. They can't take on any more clients. Right. Right. And so this this, this is one of those things where you, you see a certain issue and you see how it gets compounded right. and compounded and compounded in so many ways to where even when you are seeking help and you feel like, I'm, I am having depressive episodes, I am being overcome with anxiety, mm-hmm. and I do want to take some steps to be healthier the actual environment that you face can sometimes actually contribute to the feelings that you are already experiencing. Absolutely. So, I mean, I want to add to this too and go back to Bell Hooks. And I think it's really important. You know, part of what she says is that the reason why we struggle with this is is mainly because in society we see depression and anxiety as signs of weakness, right? And I think that what you're describing here, even when folks are seeking help and seeking ways to get support, um, they often are, are, they come up against a, a brick wall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they find that there are not as many supports as they need. And the supports that existed previously are often being shut down, defunded. We know that mental health resources are on the decline in a lot of black communities. And so there is a lot of shame associated with seeking this help because there's just not a lot of places to go, right? Mm-hmm. Also, it's very expensive, right? So there's shame around not being able to afford it, right? There's yeah, that, shame that's about, before we even get into a conversation about healthcare right. and who gets healthcare right. and who Medication doesn't cost. and costs and, and right. co-pays. And, right. So then what happens, and Bell talks about this too, a lot of people self-medicate, right? This this often has effects on people's addictive disorders, right? Mm-hmm. Folks will sometimes um, use non-over-the-counter medicines to address their, their anxiety and depression, to address their feelings of suicide. And the these are these are logical solutions, right? And, when you think this, about it, and this also links to you know we always talk about um, the the carceral state and mm-hmm. people being imprisoned more more commonly than than any other group. People, black people that are incarcerated are more than likely people that are fighting mental absolutely illness, absolutely. And so you know it's one of those things. All of these things are connected. They and, are, and if we don't solve the root of the problem, right? <laughs> it, it, nothing ever really gets. And fixed. what is the root of the problem? Why supremacy? Right. You know, you have black folk living under systems of racial discrimination, uh, health inequity, work in space mismatch, you know, anti-blackness every single day on their jobs. They're encouraged not to take off work even when they are sick. They're not able to make the amount of money that they need for doing the same type of work that their peers are doing. Right. Of course, that's going to put you in a place where you feel low. Right. Where you feel like this is this is not working, where you feel that you're working for nothing. 
right? And that's what, that's, you know, going back to Sisters of the End, that's what she's talking about. She says, you know, uh, you're living under an anti-black, white, heteropatriarchal capitalist society that tells you that you are worthless, right? That tells you that you are inherently the crime. You are the problem. You are the deviant, right? And we can't all just be the strongest of the strong and just fight that back at every moment of our lives. So these feelings are valid. These feelings are real. These feelings are legitimate. And I think, you know, what I want to move toward now is thinking about how we address them and how we, you know, find some solutions because the system itself is not going to provide us with that. Right. Right. Like Audrey said, like the master's tools will never bring down the master's house. And so we as community members, as comrades, as co-strugglers, we have to build scaffolding to protect one another. Right. And we came up with four steps. I love these steps. Do you? I absolutely love these steps. I think they are 100% true and purposeful and useful for any black person living in the contiguous states. Of <laughs> not just a contiguous. Not, this is, this is diasporic. Contiguous. This is diasporic, right? Whether you live here, you don't live here, you live anywhere. If you're a black person in the world, yeah. these steps will help you. So let's talk about it. And these come from feminist principles, right? So the first one is embracing an inner self-knowing. What does it mean to embrace an inner self-knowing? Well, this means that all of us, you know, our gut is the most sacred part of our body. Our gut is ancestral. When we get that feeling in our gut about who we are, what we need, what is right and good for us, we have to trust ourselves, right? And a lot of us have been through immense trauma and we've been through uh, a lot of pain. So it can be hard to discern when we're hearing from our gut and when we're hearing from a place of pain and hurt. But what we have to do is work on centering and grounding ourselves, right? Practices that are rooted in rituals and uh, getting back to the earth, planting, um, stepping out on the ground, put your bare feet in the soil, right? Getting back to the water. There are so many ways to ground ourselves so that we can find ourselves and fi- and figure out what that self-knowing is about, right? Um, in, in Sisters of the Yam, uh, Belle talks about the ways that she returned to herself by returning home to her people, mm-hmm. to her kin, um, and how she was able to hear the spirits um, and her ancestors because she was back on the soil where her people were, you know? Um, the other one is, the next thing is, number two, setting boundaries. Mm. This is so important. It's a big one. Right? Setting boundaries is about knowing our limits and setting them with others and then holding them and saying, hey, hey, guess what? Um, this is what is good for me, right? This is the distance at which, so this is what Prentice uh, Hempel says, the boundaries that we set are the distance at which I can love you and myself simultaneously, mm. right? When you set a boundary, you say, this is what I need in order for me to be safe and happy and whole. And it's also the distance at which I can give you those things as well. Right. Where I'm not compromising myself in order to be in your life. Right. That is what a boundary is. And to be to be very clear, that is different from a wall. Yes. So a wall is I have closed myself up. I have erected this uh, this cement or this this brick um, and I have put it between the world and I. So that no one can actually get in. I'm not actually learning how to be intimate with people. I'm not learning how to be close to people. I'm not learning how to articulate my needs. I would rather just turn off that that possibility because I've been hurt before. That's different. And and the other thing that I do want to point out, right, is 
those two things are linked. Yes, right? they are. When you embrace your inner, inner self knowing, when you trust your gut, when you are able to define what works for you and what doesn't work for you, that then empowers you to be able to set those healthy boundaries. Yes. Right. Because you are fully aware of this is where I am. This is who I am. And this is what's going to work for me. And this is what's not going to work for right. me. And the more we are able to communicate that with people, that builds healthier relationships. Absolutely. And this goes to the next point, right? Number three, I call it flexing your boundaries. What is flexing your boundaries? My my motto this year has been, that has nothing to do with me. Mm. Flexing a boundary means also knowing when people are trying to drag you into their shit and trying to get you involved in their emotional roller coasters and saying, I'm not getting on the ride. That's a different kind of boundary, right? Being invested in people does not mean that you have to go on the ride where they have forgotten their boundaries, mm. right? Where they have forgotten the ways that they are going to behave within the within the band with of what you have offered, right? You don't have to be fully emotionally available to deal with other people's emotions. You don't have to do it. It doesn't make you a mean person. It doesn't make you a resentful person or a vindictive person. It makes you a whole person. And once, a bit, once again, going back to this definition of boundaries, Flexing boundaries to me is an act of love. Yes, it is. Because when you can tell someone, hey, that's a boundary for me. Yes. You're, you are What you are effectively communicating is I love you enough that yes. I can tell you that that's not something that I can do. And I still want to be in your life. And I, st- I still want to be around. I'm not cutting you off. I'm not shutting you out. Yes. I'm just letting you know that that thing there. I can't do it. That's it's, it's not for me. And if I do it, it hurts me. And if it hurts me, it also hurts you and it hurts our relationship. And and being able to love someone that way then empowers them to be able to love you the right way. Right. right? It teaches it's people a reciprocal. how to love you. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. Jesus. <laughs> We're feeling this a lot. We are. You can't tell. <laughs> and the fourth step is prioritizing and customizing your healing journey. Now, I really wanted to make sure that we said customizing because a lot of people have um, complex relationships toward healing and there are different uh, services and processes that people have available to them. So for some people, therapy just doesn't work, right? Um, Or like individual one-on-one therapy doesn't work or it's not accessible. They can't afford it. Um, There's not the right therapist in their area. Virtual therapy isn't really effective, right? Um, But, you know, they might actually do really well with joining a community group where they do service organizing and reach out to folks who have similar uh, issues as them, right? That might be a form of therapy. Um, They may be a part of a grief community. I'm a part of a grief community that has been really, really helpful for me. And that has been an alternative for me to traditional Christian church, Mm -hmm. right? Because Christian church for me has been very violent as a queer person who's also polyamorous, right? So what I've done is found these places in community with others in addition to my individual one-on-one therapy uh, relationship to help bolster my healing work. I journal, I meditate, I spend a lot of time alone with myself, interrogating what I want and need for myself. I take long baths. I sat in the bath for four hours one day and I don't mm-hmm. give a fuck. I needed a four hour bath that day. You know what and I'm saying? It and it worked. Good. I sit with my plants. Like these are things that are the part are a part of my customized healing journey because I know how I feel afterward. And that and that's the thing, like prioritizing and customizing it. Right. Because like you said, not everything is going to work and you might try something and it might work for your friend and it don't work for you. Right. You try to meditate. Maybe you can't meditate. Right. Maybe you take a bath. Maybe you go for a long walk. Right. Maybe you listen to music. Maybe you dance. It's it's about trying things, trying yes. and in a lot of cases, opening yourself up and trying new things that you might not have been open to before and seeing what works. Keep what works. 
eliminate what doesn't. Yes. And the truth of the matter is, this is all about not having to do stuff that doesn't feel good to you. Mm-hmm. Right. Not having to do stuff out of obligation. I know that we have to go to jobs that we don't want to work. I know that we have to sit next to those coworkers who treat us like shit. I know that we have to deal with white people on a daily fucking basis. We have to confront police officers. Right. There are things that are unavoidable. But that means that in the rest of our lives, in the other part of our lives, we have to take control about what, what we actually can do to keep ourselves safe and whole. You can find my mom and dad, a.k.a. That Black Couple, on the web at thatblackcouple.com. That Black Couple is owned and operated by Color Combos Media. If you would like to help fund our content, sign up at www.patreon.com slash colorcombosmedia. Please consider giving us 5 or $10 per month to help us build our platform and grow our organization. You can also give one-time donations at www.paypal.me slash colorcombosmedia. All donations are welcome. All right, let's get into this reflection. Let's do it. Um, you know, the, the conversation is usually my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really looking forward to the reflection today because I, I know for me, what I wanted to talk about was my own self-actualization. Mm. And I feel like it took me a long time to get here. And I feel like I've really only been in this place for like a month or two. Mm. And I want to describe what it feels like for me so that other people can understand what it might feel like for them. Um, and I want to make it clear that there's no timetable. Yes. Right. So you might hit that at 20. You might hit it at 40. You might hit it at 80. Mm-hmm. W- w- whenever you get that to that point, that's when you get there and don't feel like because you haven't gotten there that something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I can say for me is I got to a point where I just realized what my worth is. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I have control. And that there are some things I can sign myself up for and some things that I'm not going to sign myself up for. And ultimately, I woke up one day and I just said, I'm better than that. You are. And I feel like that's one of those stigmatized words where saying better than is supposed to be like really dark and scary. Bro. But there are some situations. You're just better than. I'm better than. You are. There are some people and not people. Individuals. In entirety, right. But how Behaviors. they act. How, yeah, how they behave, how they make you feel, what, what what situations they'll put me in, right? How they'll talk to me, right? That I'm better than, correct? And there is nothing wrong nothing. with me saying that out loud, mm-hmm. full chested voice. Hey, to say your chest. I'm better than that. Yes, you are. And walking away and walking doing something away. that actually does service me in your may suit. And that and that self actualization then also empowers you on the flip side to then, like I just said. Focus on the things that do work for you, mm-hmm. right? Focus on the things that, that are restorative. Focus on the things that feed your soul, yes. that make you smile. Focus focus on the things that actually really matter to you and that you should be spending your time and your energy on. Yes. And that, I think, for me, especially from a, from a mental health angle, has really helped me focus and and kind of keep those dark negative thoughts yes away because it's energetic it's it's like energetic. You're, you're choosing where to spend your energy right and if, if i'm not in a cloud of negativity mm-hmm. or criticism or feeling like i don't measure up or mm-hmm. trying to figure out i want i really want to be in that group but it doesn't feel mm-hmm. right so i'm going to kind of contort myself if you take yourself out of those instances it's amazing right. what what you then gain on the other side. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I know that, you know, we sit in this position of privilege 
as we mm-hmm. talk about this, right? We are 37 years old. We have, you know, worked in corporate America off and on for the last 20 years. We own a home, you know, we have pensions and so on and so forth. We are squarely middle to upper class at this juncture of our lives. So I want to be very, very clear that we are aware of the immense privilege that we hold at this juncture. But I also want to say is that these steps and the ways that we're talking about this is not from a place of privilege. It's from a place of inner knowing and inner knowing is not uh, rooted in class. Right. So I I think that for me, my reflective moment is about accountability, because whether you are, you know, middle class, upper class, working class, poor, you can still build community with others around you who can hold you accountable to the standards you hold for yourself. And that's what my therapist told me recently. Right. I've made some really tough decisions in the past few years about how to move differently. I had to let go of some relationships that were very toxic to me, um, romantic relationships, familial relationships, uh, platonic relationships that I had to just release. I had to release them. And it was very, very painful for me to do that. And I wanted to go back. I wanted to go back and I wanted to keep people in my life. And what she said to me was, you know, how are you going to make sure that this is permanent? And recently, in my most recent therapy appointment, she said, um, when you think you want to go back, I want you to to sit down with yourself and ask yourself what it is that you're looking for. Mm. What is it in that relationship that you are looking for? And why do you think you need to find it there? Yeah, why why is it that that's the only place you can get it? Right. And so what I told her is, you know, I'm going to take that to my community. Like, I have an inner sanctum of best friends who know me very, very well. And I share everything with them. I'm transparent with them. I'm honest with them. Because, you know, we will gaslight ourselves. We will gaslight ourselves. We'll lie to ourselves, right? We won't see things clearly, especially if we are in love or in some type of sexually intimate relationship with someone. And we need our community around us to hold us accountable to ourselves selves right and that has nothing to do with privilege that has everything to do with loving yourself and loving your people right and so what i want to just convey with this last reflective moment is that you know depression anxiety suicide these are really real things that we are facing as black people these are things that we are not talking about enough and we need one another we need to have these conversations we need to be transparent about those feelings we need to talk about them when they happen and then we need to be available as community members to be open and non-judgmental and not shame one another and be available with resources. And how how can I show up? What can I take off of your plate? What do you need from me right now? Like that's the kind of responses that we need to have. Not, oh girl, well, at least you got a man. Oh girl, at least you got them kids. Oh girl, well, at least you got a job. Oh girl, none of that, right? Like mm-hmm. we have to we have to agree as community members that we are absolutely here for one another. What did, what did Gwendolyn Brooks say? We are one another's harvest. Yes. Right. And I think that there's something to be said about the ways that black feminists has long taught us that we actually are the safe place to land. And we can also be a very violent place to land. And we can't do that to each other anymore. Yeah. If we want to heal, we have to heal together. Yes. And we have to address whatever the hurt is. Absolutely. And when we address it together as a community and we're each other's harvest, that's a bountiful harvest. I agree. Thank you all for listening. Before you go, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at that BLK couple, on Facebook at that black couple, and look us up on the internets at www.thatblackcouple.com. Bye.